How you doing, everyone? Thank you for tuning into this episode of Ready to Record from Blue Girl Studios. My name is Daniel, the D3 Cohen. I am your host, and I am speaking to you from Blue Girl Productions' worldwide headquarters and studios here in my garage. I'm a 19-year-old aspiring musician, engineer, and producer, and like many of you, I make music in my own home studio. You know, some of today's biggest hit makers work from home studios, so we can help one of you accomplish your big dreams. In our last episode, I had the extreme pleasure of interviewing my dear friend, Craig Dreyer, and got to talk about so much really cool stuff from New York in the 80s and what it was like recording then, all the way to what it meant to establishing a small project studio in the world of ADAT and eventually coming to Pro Tools and getting back to the roots of analog tape and large format consoles. You can find that episode and lots of other great music podcasts at our network site, pantheonpodcasts.com. You can also find that episode and other episodes of Ready to Record on our site, bluegirlproductions.net, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Today is a special episode, and I'm really excited to share it with you. Today, I'm interviewing Scott Wildman and Peter Munters. Scott Wildman and Peter Munters have a lot in common when it comes to their recording and how they got here. However, their early starts aren't as similar as one might think. For both of them, they did each start out in bands, but their paths kind of diverged there only to come back in the mid-2000s. For Scott, after being in bands, he ended up joining the army being in the Signal Corps. Eventually, once he left the army, he found himself in my hometown of San Francisco working as DJ and eventually finding himself at the LA Recording School where he met Scott. Scott, on the other hand, while also in bands, stayed in them, finding himself in a punk band called Over It with a Virgin Records deal. After that was up, he found himself enjoying the recording process and enrolled himself into the LA Recording School. From there, the rest is history. They came together in Atlas Oceanic doing film sound and, most importantly, animated TV and film sound. Now, this is a really cool interview, so without further ado, here's my interview with Scott Wildman and Peter Munters. Scott Wildman and Peter Munters, welcome to the podcast. Hello. Daniel, good evening. Good evening. Thanks for being on. It's it's a ton of fun to have you guys. So I'm really curious. You guys both have interesting careers in music, and you've both had some really cool credit. How how did you get into where you are now with sort of the animation side of things and the production that you're doing? Okay. Um, gosh, how did, how did we get where we are in this moment? Huh. What a bizarre moment it is. No, no um, on, honestly, the answer I think is all about the 19 year old ear because when I had a 19 year old ear, I was persuading myself to 
get really good grades in college my sophomore year so that I could justify going on sabbatical with my punk rock band because we were signed and encouraged to go on tour and play shows and continue on the path which eventually caused me to fall in love with recording um so gosh i kind of just like launched into what should be a longer story maybe but i'll try to condense it so i had a punk rock band we grew up in northern virginia uh, and started the band in my friend's basement in high school uh it was called over it and uh, you can listen to that band it's it's out there somewhere cast into obscurity which is now available to everyone mostly on the internet and you had a virgin record deal right yeah we we did we we got signed by virgin records and um made one album uh, through that deal and then got out of it through like a classic uh major label horror story horror uh, restructuring horror story in which everyone loses their jobs and the band just kind of keeps on going for a little while and then regroups and starts another band mm. but anyway uh enough about bands because that's not really i i kind of like participated in a lot of the recording and and wondered what the magical uh buttons and lights and faders all really did uh, without ever uh, really applying myself to answering that question. I, I I think I actually favored the magical thinking at that point in my life when right. I was 19, which I don't know. I don't know how I feel about that in retrospect, but it was awesome in the moment uh, because we got to go uh, record an album. Uh, the first time I got to go record an album in, in Southern California was in at a studio called Audio International in Ojai with uh, my dear friend Cameron Webb, who is uh, an absolute, um, absolutely fantastic uh, producer, engineer, mixer, and and I'm really privileged to call him one of my, my first mentors in this world. But my band over it came out here to record with him. And we worked on this enormous Neve console in this like really cool room. And there were instruments there from classic records. And it was just a very surreal and awe-inspiring experience to do that and be in a punk rock band doing that, just making loud noise and trying to figure out how to write songs. Uh, and I think that's when it when it when the love affair with recording started for me. But um, after many years of touring and and uh, doing a couple albums with that band, I decided to go to recording school because I had been offered work in uh, recording audiobooks, Oddly enough. Um, and uh, even before music, I think books were really my first passion. So that kind of made sense to me. But I, in a moment of imposter syndrome, I thought, well, I should probably actually ask someone who knows what they're doing so that I can <laughs> make the most of this opportunity. So I decided right. to go to recording school. And that's actually where I met Scott here, um, which uh, which is wonderful. And... Um, Eventually, I'm trying to leave out like the boring parts. Scott's like the most exciting part. So I had to mention whatever (laughs) about 85% of the way through uh, the the, uh, Los Angeles recording school. um, What was what was our program called? Just recording in general recording arts. Yeah, you know, they've changed the name of it like three different times, but I want to say, no kidding. Um, I I think it was, it started out audio engineering 
and then it's recording arts. I I went there, Daniel, because I was attracted to the the range of studios. They had a, a nice array of gear oh, yeah. that I wanted to become familiar with because that's where I'd kind of gotten my feet a little bit wet without really having any solid training. And I and I had met some new friends in the valley who had consoles, large larger format consoles, and various uh, just like all kinds of various analog equipment at their their spots and I wanted to to practice and get some accreditation if possible from from uh, you know good company I guess I don't really care about a degree per se but just learning with people who want to learn I think is the most was the most targeted objective of that process for me so I chose Los Angeles recording school and near the end of it we had a film film sound course where we were learning about post-production uh all the elements of post-production and the elements of production sound for film. And I made good friends with uh, the instructor. And if, uh, about eight weeks after I finished the course, he emailed me and offered me an internship at an animation studio uh, called Atlas Oceanic in Burbank. And so I took the internship and I, I cleaned toilets and served coffee and tried to really make the best environment possible for all the clients and uh, the operations crew as well there and try to really apply myself to learning how an animation recording studio worked um which was not an opportunity opportunity i'd ever foreseen per se but when it was handed to me i felt like kind of a little kid just wanting to you know <laughs> peer peer through the uh, the keyhole at the the world behind the one that had you know, given me so many laughs as a kid. Hmm. I just loved cartoons. It's true. Yeah, I mean, yeah. And we, we had a professor who was really awesome uh, at the film school called Van, uh, named Vance Walden, who used to say, "I'm gonna, oh, I'm gonna ruin the the I'm gonna ruin the movie watching experience for all of you. It's the greatest yeah. thing ever." Yes. <laughs> yes. And you'll know, never look at it the same way again. Yeah, but he always used to say, "I'm gonna ruin it with a with like a sardonic grin." And yeah. um, I have to say, in retrospect, he didn't ruin it at all for me. <laughs> like learning the the nuts and bolts of and the mechanics of getting evoking a feeling, and also hitting broadcast specs and making everything nice and clean and usable for her film and TV has been a a wonder inducing process for me. I think it's really cool, and it sparked my imagination. So that's how I got to do that stuff. Um, and uh, through applying myself in the internship, I was eventually eventually hired on as an operations manager there and started to do um, records because I expressed an interest in in them and, and knew that I had the strongest background there to begin with. Uh, so right. I started working with, with the actors in the booth and the, the production crews and voice directors, uh, capturing ensemble and single mic records for various uh, cartoon TV series and uh, animation series and and features as well. Cool, yeah, nice, yeah. And also, in addition to that, um, I started. Uh, I had another have another mentor uh, named Rob McIntyre, who's who's uh, training sort of got me in the door of uh, sound design for for post production as well. He's a, a really exceptional and award winning animation sound designer and we worked on a couple of really cool projects together 
um, uh, including uh, the Rocky Adventures of Rocky and Bullwinkle series on Amazon now, and uh, Pinky Malinky on, on Netflix. It's a Nickelodeon original series. Such a weird cartoon. <laughs> it made me weirder. It. Yeah, it definitely made me weirder. Blew, blew my mind. I don't yeah. think I've seen this cartoon yet, but it certainly sounds like it's strange. Just, I, I mean, you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't judge a TV show by its title. But the title sounds absolutely strange. I can encapsulate the the show and take it to a new level for you too. It's about an adolescent hot dog who is born to a family of humans. Uh, it's a genetic mutation that's occurred one or once or twice uh, prior in his family lineage, but it's about his you know, coming of age as an eighth grader or so in uh, uh, a <laughs> suburban town in America with his friends. Wild. Yeah. A lot of the show was about the metaphor of his emotion through his motion. The metaphor of his emotion through his motion. And the, the, <laughs> and the sounds were... They're kind of like, I know there's sort of an alphabet of sounds for Pinky Malinky, but it it was essentially balloony rubber stretching, um, digestive problems and and flatulence, like farts, like all kinds of farts when he was upset. Huh. And uh, sometimes just a wild card. The art to me in it looked like um, like the old Betty Boop style sometimes, or or um, what did that other thing you showed me, Cuphead? Oh yeah, Cuphead's cool too. You know, it's kind of like crazy. I don't know if that's out yet. I don't I don't know about that one. Um, yeah. So I yeah, I, Scott, what do you think? What do I think? Uh, I think uh, something about nineteen and that age. Also, <laughs> where everything flipped for me. This is what um, Stephen King talks about 19 in the Dark Tower. That's like, yeah, that's funny. That's yeah, funny you mentioned that. Yeah, yeah. Because that's when I feel like I stepped out into Portland. Um, I found myself in a, in a, you know, a couple different bands in Portland and kicking around that scene, um, confused like every, uh, every other young man, but Daniel, um, <clears throat> who seems to have it together, uh, at that's, 19. That's only because I was thrown into it. <laughs> yeah, I, I know your father. <laughs> Scott, what was your first recording experience? I don't know if I know the answer to that. Oh, let's see. My first recording experience would be with signified monkey, a band that I would sing in. And it was in a basement in North Portland. Um, and I've was I it raining coming, outside? It, it, it's Portland. It was <laughs> <laughs> it was raining. It smelled like coffee. Um, it was Portland in the nineties. Um, what I remember most about the recording is not knowing what the guy behind the computer w was doing. It was an early version of Pro Tools that he was using. It wasn't going to tape. I'd never really seen that, and before. it wasn't going to ADAT either. Um, it may have been going to ADAT. Uh, I've gone back and listened to the recording. I need to find what that year is this? Here. Like ninety five or something? This would be ninety six. Yeah, Pro Tools was around then. Yeah, I think Sound yeah, Tools version four. Yeah, something like that. 
Yeah. Yeah. You had a rig in the back corner of this basement and, uh, you know, I remember seeing the screen and everything. So I'd probably be the first time that I saw it. Um, and after that, I didn't really touch any of that stuff until I found Ableton. It kind of like disappeared from my vision. Yeah. I just concentrated on being a DJ for a while. I got lost in, in that. Um, I found myself in Portland uh, throwing throwing all night raves from the time I was 19 to about 22. And then I wound up in San Francisco uh, as a DJ and stayed down there for a few years um, and then into the Army. When I came out of the Army, I had no idea what I was going to do. I had a GI Bill to use and... Uh, accidentally came across a program called Ableton. And uh, that's when I got lost in, in that thing. I have friends that I can still hear echoing. Um, what are you doing? Uh, you haven't come out of your room in a week. Uh, everybody's having a good time. Uh, we think you're losing it. Uh, <laughs> and you said, I'm dealing with a lot of buttons in here and I like it. I, yeah, yeah. And and you're wasting your time. I had, I had a friend come back years later that Peter knows, a good friend of mine. I won't mention his name. And he's like, you know that time <laughs> that I told you that you're wasting your time? You, you weren't wasting your time. So that was nice. Um, but, you know, kind of with what Peter was saying earlier about having an interest in something and then not being trained in it. That's where I found myself. So I found myself holding my GI Bill, and uh, and 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 realizing I needed to uh, I needed if I was going to go to college because I I'm terrible at school. I had no interest in school when I was in school. I passed school, but if I'm not interested in the subject, I am going to bomb. Mm. So I needed to do something that I was interested in, and this was definitely something that I was obsessed in. So that's how I found myself in the Los Angeles recording school. Um, it's a good push from my friend, Mark Wick, who is the bass player for a band called the Bogman. It's a big East coast band in the nineties. He's the music supervisor for NCIS LA. Uh, he, he really kind of encouraged me if I was so obsessed with something to follow it. And I took that step. Uh, while I was at school, I met Peter, Whee! and Whee! and and we were we were talking about this recently. That class, I'll never forget the teacher being, you know, very stern for a moment, being like, "Look around at everybody in the room." It's like somebody in here is some of you here going to be best friends. Some of these people you're never going to see again. Did I get that right, Peter? Is that, is that yeah. how you said it? Yeah, yeah. And I remember looking over at Peter like, hey. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, we stayed in each other's radar through through good and bad. And when an opportunity came around last year to uh, go down to Oceanic or Atlas Oceanic and start sitting in on sessions and taking notes, I jumped at it. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't have to wash the toilets or make the coffee. And I knew that that doesn't always happen. Yeah. And that I'm very lucky 
to have that opportunity. And so I took it extremely seriously. Just to kind of qualify what Scott's talking about. So the one of the shows that I work on is an ensemble record for a Disney Junior series called Muppet Babies. It's a reboot from the uh, of the original 80s, 90s series that, that I think both of us probably grew up with to some degree. Mm-hmm. Um, um, and generally we record um, two, two full episodes worth of dialogue as radio plays in the span of a four-hour recording session. So with this cast, we have six actors in, in the record room and we record a single track of their performance. So I flip the faders uh, in, in time to their performance. And which is tricky. Yeah. And, uh, but, and fun. Um, but gosh, it makes you sweat as well. Um, you never know what they're going to do. Those actors, they're so creative. Right. <laughs> so, so much fun too, you know, listening to, we Kermit do, I think we, we laugh a lot and I think that's the key to, to keeping it, um, keeping an atmosphere of trust in the room and forward momentum through that feeling of trust. But anyway, we're recording a lot and it's very half, uh, fast paced. And I also uh, serve as the dialogue editor for the show. So I assemble the radio playing, clean up the recordings and, and uh, label them and format them and organize them for delivery to the client so that they can go ahead and make the cartoon. In this case, the animation is inspired by the performances in the booth, which is not true for all, all cartoons. Um, no, that's, that's actually really cool. Yeah. So the, the writing is is one element, but, but the performance often uh, takes the anim- the storyboard artist's inspiration to a new level um, when they when they hear whatever the actor has come up with. Um, so i I had had the experience of serving as an assistant engineer in these records and taking notes for the editor, <clears throat> me. Um, and I had had the, the experience of the luxury of having an assistant and I had two assistants go by the wayside and for a little while I had been sort of throwing Scott's hat in the arena to the studio management as a, you know, potential assistant engineer and, and it's a nice hat sound effects editor and someone they could bring (laughs) in and work with, um, and uh, one day the, my assistant bailed at the last minute and I said, I'm bringing in a new assistant. <laughs> and and uh, ever since then, Scott, Scott helped me finish the series. Um, so that was that was really cool. Yeah, it, it was, um, you know, a heartbreaker when everything took off with COVID and that that ended suddenly. Yeah. Because um, that was a lot of fun. I love everybody in that cast. They were so cool. And the director's cool. Yeah. And, and the, uh, honestly, the flip side of that is this show was the, the first one to solidly uh, rearrange itself and uh, continue moving forward. And during which time I was actually at my parents' house on the East Coast. And so I reverted back to that assistant role as I continued editing the series. And the studio owner, Dev, uh, Devin Bowman, uh, another fantastic uh Gosh, I have like kind of a pantheon of mentors, but Devin uh, took me <laughs> under his wing as the intern years ago at Atlas and has been just 
kind of like it, a super a patient man, a very patient man. He's like, I, don't, I can't figure out if he's a big brother or uncle I never had, but something like that. He's just taking such good care of me and he's, his spirit is indomitable with the, uh, with the number of weird technical issues and yeah. Well, and, you know, uh, yeah. I, I think having, having had a lot of mentors be called uncles there, there's, there's this thing. Some of them are uncles. Some of them are older siblings. Some of them are the weird cousins. And some <laughs> of them are all three. Yeah. <laughs> well, my uh, my wife is Indian American, and if if you're Indian or if you know, then every man is an uncle. Right. Uh, right. It's, the same. <laughs> it's be it indigenous or uh, uh, the the Armenian culture. Everybody's auntie or uncle. Um, it's a good uh, thing to aim for. No, completely. <laughs> completely so how about your 19 year old deal at 19 year old year daniel what's the story there well you know it's it's ever-changing it's surprising you know I, i mean everybody has a lot of their taste inherited from their parents it's it's that duality right you you first find your music tastes within the music of your parents and your siblings and your family and all that let's face it your parents have really good taste in music well that that certainly helps that's a lucky a, thing and having a a wall of cds and and a wall of vinyl and a wall of cassettes uh and and players for all of them uh as as a young man was certainly uh certainly a, a a fun thing and then you know you branch out from there uh when i was and this is very very early uh i was probably five or six and i was given a hard drive of uh music and i actually still have it it's it's sitting in front of me without with in a hard drive caddy uh, an open one but a, a hard drive caddy on my desk and uh it had probably two or three hundred gigabytes worth of music movies and tv shows uh and i that's where i went from very hippie you know the grateful dead the hard rock of the 70s the who uh, right the stones all that sort of thing to hip-hop and and finding finding the voice there and i had already been exposed to hip-hop um we talked about my father a second ago. My dad booked a, a managed a, a, a band, a hip hop group, which was also a theater company, and it it was and is called Felonious. Um, and actually, <laughs> I, the I was just talking to Peter or pardon me Scott earlier about um, a a client that I had just had a session for um, tracking horns for a for a song he talked about uh, having me and me and some other stuff on and that's actually one of the guys from felonious who i've known since you know i was i was in diapers that's awesome um, <laughs> yeah I'll, I'll send you guys that track it's 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 shape I'll, I'll send you what he sent me as the original track that was produced years ago and i'll send you the stuff that we added uh, i i had my sax player and we had we added 28 tracks in total and he of that 28 he added 16 of them. So, oh, that's awesome. While you while you're there and that side note, uh, since you've mentioned it twice and I wanted to ask twice, what talk about the the horn recording session. Where what how? Um so and I'll if Scott hasn't sent them uh I'll Yeah, I'll send forward, I'll send them over. I I sent um 
I, my studio is based out of, it, it's, it's very much like big pink from the band. So I don't, I don't know if you've ever heard the big pink basement tapes, um, you know, that the Bob Dylan and the band did, but that's, that's yeah. kind of the sound that I strive to achieve because it's a, it's a garage, you know, yeah. we've done our best. We have, you know, proper sound drape in here, um, pipe and drape up to, to split the, to split the space. Um, and as far as gear goes, my my recording gear itself is rather limited. Um, that's going to change in the next year, year and a half, um, just because my needs have changed and my production goals have changed as well. Um, but as far as instruments and amplifiers, that's really where I've put a lot of my time and energy and money. Um, so, you know, it's a, it's a garage, but we have a Hammond and a Rhodes and a oh, Rhodes cool. piano bass, uh, and an eighties Roland synth and an Arturia synth and a Nord, which I actually need to get repaired. I just found out today. Oh my, uh, my keys are broken, but regardless, you know, we, we have vintage keyboards, vintage amps, uh, vintage instruments. I have Federa number serial number two eighty five, um, in, in the studio, which was, it, it is on sort of a. 18th birthday gift slash indefinite loan from uh one of my father's frat brothers who's who's one of my uncles <laughs> what is that um, it uh it's a base it, oh it, cool i've never heard of it federa is one of those coveted base companies in the world wow cool it's, i'll look it, it up um and i'll i'll, I'll send along a picture of yeah. Guinevere. that's that's the name of the axe uh Guinevere. it's the only it's the only base that Vinny Federa ever made in this body shape ever and it's it, it, even if he did it's still one of a kind because the wow. second owner of the instrument took it to Ken Smith who was a former friend turned sort of rival once Vinny Federa started his own company he worked for Ken Smith started his own company worked still worked for Ken Smith went away and then Ken Smith and Vinny Federa were the two New York uh, uh, luthiers Oh wow! Making making crazy instruments. So this is a bass that was a five string, and it has this crazy metal edge shape. And then it was taken to Ken Smith in the early '90s, and he converted it to a six string. So it's it's a very one of a kind. Like you're you're never gonna see anything remotely like this anywhere. Federa, F I D. I sent the uh, pictures to your Facebook, E-R-A. Peter. F O D E R A. Federa, yeah. Very cool. Wow. That sounds like a rockin' garage, I'll be honest. You'll you'll have to come up to San Francisco <laughs> and, and and jam here sometime. That's um, cool. I'm I I haven't recorded a lot of horns, but I know ribbon microphones are are uh, are good if you can get you the can afford, get the right kind. If you can afford good ribbon mics, um the the current one on my list is the Royer R ten. Yeah. Is that like yeah. one of the newer High SPL handling ones. It's their newer entry. My, it, I, I'm. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I've seen the garage. One. I can't, you know, I can't repair <laughs> R101s all the time. Yeah. Um, but I uh, mean, you never know. Some of the some of that high end roll off might serve you well in a garage if it was the right yeah. thing. Well, at the point where you're recording in a garage, you probably know the the budget of said garage. But uh, you know, <laughs> garages um, are garages are not bad. I w- I would not. Uh, poo poo the garage at all. Well, no, I, I mean, Boston was it Boston that first? Yeah, exactly. You know, Tom Schultz, the, Tom Schultz's yeah. converted garage produced the uh, 
it the monolithic his, Boston it record. It wasn't his garage though. It was it was he lived in an apartment building and he rented out the basement. Similar oh, similar the deal. Basement. Oh okay. yeah. Yeah. And and I don't know if you've seen pictures of that basement, it, but that thing's crazy. Yeah, in fairness, it, he was an absolute genius uh, electronics well, well, engineer. He was, well, he's a he Is. has an M he has an MS in electronics engineering i believe yeah at the okay. at the time he was he worked for polaroid yeah he was the head polaroid's lead engineer <laughs> uh-huh who also just happened to be a incredibly talented organist guitar player and audio engineer and had a studio in the 70s with two two inch machines the whole thing actually makes sense when you look at it <laughs> have you That's ever quite a, quite a side hustle have either of you guys ever encountered one of those rockman units why do I know it's that? A, it's a, that? It's up. a pocket-sized uh, direct injection uh, guitar amp simulator yes. box and speaker Absolutely. simulator box and effect unit box. Like uh, it does the um, it does the fix like cl- super ultra clean like Roland uh, chorus sound, which brings me okay. to something I wanted to mention that I forgot to mention. Like the whole reason that I think I ended up here. Um, was a fascination with the guitar. And that ultimately, if you zoom out for me, is a fascination with tone. Like, I, I want to understand why um, why harmonic content works the way it does, where it comes from, mm-hmm. and, and, and especially how it can be translated from a vibration in the air into a signal in a wire that, that continues to give me that magical feeling I was talking about before. So I right. I started playing guitar when I was 14 and I'm still relatively mediocre at it but I absolutely love it and it's like an endless path of discovery and and uh so yeah guitar is a huge component of of the recording story for me tone tone bro <laughs> tone bro and I think that attention to detail is a, is both a gift that gets you into the door of this world and also a curse you have to look out for because Especially if you want to get into mixing, you can't miss the f- the forest for the trees. You can only spend so much time on on detail, or you'll sabotage yourself. That's why I'm always, you know, and it isn't. I'm not going to say about every Grateful Dead album. I get frustrated with the recording on some of those albums because I'm like, this music is so good, it deserves a better recording. <laughs> what the hell is going on here? Well, you, you know, know. Betty did what she could for us. I'm not talking about I'm not talking about the live stuff. But that's I'm talking about the studio stuff. Well, yeah, okay. They, that's where the road stuff. leads. I, that's the way I've come to understand it. It's like they just couldn't they couldn't let the music only had that that to express and that air to breathe in the studio without the crowd, without the road ahead of, ahead of the band and behind the band without all of it. Right. It's some bands use the studio as an instrument. Yeah. You know. Yeah. They did not. <laughs> I mean, I, well, it's it's that thing, right? You know, it, you can either be very excited about the studio or incredibly dread it, and that's also a. a you uh, know, it, it's it's also a chalked up to who's on your production team, how how involved are you? That right that whole sort of thing. I mean, I I talked to Lenise Ben. Christina Picari, Shelly Yakis, Toby Scott. There, you know these these, and I, I bring up these four specifically because of their history in big studios. You know, absolutely. And, and 
Christina and Lenice are very split from Shelly and Toby, and I'm I, both both made very valid arguments, but uh, it's 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 an interesting duality of engineering, and really, I think plays into your point, Scott, about how records sound, where it's like Lenice and Christina are very adamant about the idea that if you're the engineer on a project and you've been requested for that project, then you have to love that music. You have to be their newest, biggest fan, and you have to be the newest member of the band, and you have to be the cheerleader. Absolutely. And then there's the other side of it where, and this is the the more traditional kind of old school 60s, 70s way of recording of, you know, it, the the audio engineers came from guys in lab coats who were initially basically mastering engineers cutting cutting your your record into vinyl and they were you know they were they were not the guys that made that made you do what you're doing that was the producer's job so you as the engineer are supposed to sit there speak when spoken to <laughs> answer questions when asked <laughs> give opinion when asked Shut up, get good sounds, and stay out of the way. And what's funny is don't be. What's quiet. funny is that's that's really what the the animation record room is like when you get in there. But over the years, I've become a smartass in there. I don't even care anymore. <laughs> like, I know, I know, I'm doing a good job. Like, I I think that when I when I want to say something silly or just like lighten the mood, I feel like really grateful to have that impulse because I know. That stress is often the 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 baseline of emotion in that record room. So yeah, but the the lab coat thing is is funny because that's also what attracted me to recording school. I saw that image in my mind. I saw that on the inside of the the recording the Beatles book at my friends on my friend's coffee table, and I thought, you know, like I want to feel like I have a lab coat in my mind at least that I can kind of wear. And feel not authoritative, but just confident. Know the things that others don't. Like just a, a confident well, technician know, like, is is responsible and makes sure that a creative environment, a useful creative environment, is fostered. Right. You okay. know. You know. I think. I, I think striving to be like the guys in lab coats is good. I think, and of course, you know, I when i when i brought up the 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 duality of the engineering of course i took their each of their words and totally put them to extremes that's just need to put that out there but <laughs> um you know I, I think i think really when i think of engineering and you guys could agree or disagree i think the guy to sort of strive to be like if we want to talk about being a true audio technician uh, would in my mind would kind of be bill putnam um who you know was a very very talented engineer um both as an audio professional and as an electronics engineer uh and you know i mean scott you're using a universal audio apollo right now and he started that company 65 70 years ago and some of his recordings are still some of the most important out there and his gear is did Sinatra. He, did Bill Sinatra. Putnam invent yeah. the uh, tube mic pre? 
I feel like the six the six ten or whatever the old the old classic UA one was on the consoles. It was one one of the first, if not the first. It it's certainly one of the first. I don't know about the first, but certainly one of them. Those um, the rooms at at Ocean Way, Ocean Way. At the studio formerly known as Ocean Ways, uh, as Ocean Way, yeah. are so magnificent. Both to both to behold and, and was, listen to, they're just awesome. <laughs> well, and Ocean Way is no capital, but it was at Ocean Way where Bill Putnam. I don't know what record, but it was Bill Putnam and at Ocean Way figured out right. I, I believe this is this is the correct thing. He was the one that figured out how to use uh, a bathroom as a reverb chamber. That that could very really? well be true. That's, uh, but there there is also a proper reverb chamber over there. Which is yes. which is awesome. That sounds right, though. I know they were doing it across or up the street at RCA in the in the uh, stairwell, which the space of which was actually preserved when they remodeled the building for the LA Film School. We totally neglected to mention that yeah. in the in the fifties and sixties, that building was yeah. the, the home of RCA recordings, yes. which is really neat. Yeah, El- Elvis's that's where space um, in there uh, is now the. Yep. Yep. And that, that, uh, crazy, uh, chamber reverb that you hear on those old RCA recordings is from this is generated by, I think a ribbon mic and a speaker in the stairwell. Um, yep. And you, you mentioned Capitol records a second ago, the lead engineer still there today, Al Schmidt, who's I think widely regarded as like the ultimate guru of microphone knowledge currently living. Uh, got he got yeah. his first gig at that RCA studio in at some point I think in the early '60s. That's another guy who's an absolute technician and uh, whose reputation precedes him as like the guy you want to be the uncle for your record. Like hey, he just cares cares for artists <laughs> right. and develops artists, but he's also just like this super humble and uh, in, exceptionally technically refined scientist. Well, and that's that's you know it, it's a it's a fun thing to to hear about guys who are not just audio engineers in sort of the modern sense, but audio technicians in sort of the the truest original sense of the term. The the guys who can really not only service but understand the equipment that they're using and be able to go, okay, I I understand why I'm using this. I know why I like it. Down to the very yeah. I mean, level. he's. He's so competent that his whole uh, his spiel is always about his favorite microphones, uh, in particular like old omnidirectional Neumann mics, like the M50s and stuff hmm. like that. Uh, of which right. he has like probably the most exceptional collection, one of the most exceptional collections around, and. His his proficiency is such that he always talks about how the the real thing is just moving the microphone an inch until it sounds right, and he just knows how to do that. And with an omnidirectional huh. mic, you have the advantage of of uh, uh, an enhanced uh, high pass filtering to kind of get a, a smoother, more open sound. But he's so right. good at mic placement that he always says he says that he often doesn't even use EQ; he just moves it a little bit. And figures out which way to move it. Well, that's kind of the best EQ, right? It's it's all mic placement. Yeah, and I, yep. that that was kind of a thing that that was uh, sort of repeated 
when I spoke to Toby Scott, he was talking about his drum sounds and he would producers would tap him on the shoulder and go, how the hell did you do that? And he went, I put microphones up. I didn't <laughs> like the sound. I moved the microphones. <laughs> oh, it's good. Who else is like Glenn Johns, you know, right. Another guy that, you know, relied on his mic placement for, you know, right. And that's, you know, if, if you're a, person that uses four mics on a kit you're probably going to try his method at least once in the session if not more probably more depending on what yeah. you're doing you know who else is awesome conversely eric valentine and i say conversely mm. because he <laughs> I, i've been a huge fan of his work for decades since i was a teenager but I saw this video after he started manufacturing the undertone audio consoles and equalizers and unfair child compressors and so forth. He did a video um, demonstrating his his equalizer design on a single, uh, I think it was like an omnidirectional overhead mic on a drum kit. And he literally turned that really nice overhead sound into the sound of a polished kit just that one one microphone and his equalizer super cool <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah Toys. no it, and and that's kind of the thing right it, and I'll, I'll have to dig this video up i i need to find it because it's a really interesting look into the way in which things work um and the way where where we as audio engineers started um there's this studio i think it's in the uk but i could be wrong it's been a while since i've seen this video but they run a one track ampex machine and all the period correct 50s gear one track um, and one track from what? you know starting in the mid 50s run you know? stuff through it record through it it's awesome by Abbey Road's old gear or something like Abbey Road, uh, any any one of those yeah, old studios, you know, they're around and they they I, I presume they have a couple of these machines. I think they have a couple of these machines just because, you know, breaking old yeah. machines service them, blah, 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 blah. But they did a they did a proper old school uh, recording of this very vintage aesthetic rockabilly band. They put okay. one mic in the center of the room, a, a, a oh, ribbon wow. mic, a figure of eight ribbon mic, like a proper, I think it was a 44. Uh, and it, uh, it sounded like a polished That's record. awesome. You know. Singing into a can. <laughs> yeah. Right. And, and they went and they went through a one mic setup, a two mic setup, a three mic setup, and a four mic setup just explaining where they would place microphones in a room and how they would sum it down. That's so cool. And it was so strange because this guy had one track, but he had a, I think a two or three band yeah. EQ and, and he was fiddling with the EQ and he went, and this EQ is like all my individual tracks. Here are my drums. And he brought up a frequency group and you're like, here are the drums here. Here's my bass. Here are my guitars. This is my That's really good sounding room. That's a yeah. very good sounding room. Yeah. Which is, I, you know, I listened to a couple of your other podcasts and, you know, I know you talk a lot about home recording <clears throat> and, uh, and it's fun to hear the opinions, some of the opinions that I heard on home recording um, and where we're at with that. Uh, it, it was funny. There was a big 
discussion in class, uh, BC as I call it now before COVID, uh, about uh, the Billie Eilish album that you've been talking about her and her and Phineas, her brother. Gosh, mm-hmm. those records sound <clears throat> so know, good. They, you know, they they pulled they pulled it off, but this one instructor was just pushing the fact he's like. I wanted to hear this if they would have taken it into a studio and re-recorded it, though. And I, I'm like, you know, there. I don't know if that would. I, I have might have killed the vibe, I, man. I have to say, those well, you know, they said they went into a studio for a minute and they said we got to finish it in the bedroom because that's it, it. They they didn't have the vibe, but the vibe had they started in a studio. Frankly, I don't think it would have sounded any different. I agree. Because at the end of the day, this is an elect. I mean, yeah, Billy's vocal. Yes, I, I don't deny that. But at the end of the day, it is very much an electronic. Yeah. Album. And even if you even if you right. harness the the colors of the studio to capture elements for the sound design or instrumentation, or even if you did the vocals in the studio, I think they still hit the target. That's that. that those records are awesome. No, the yeah. the records yeah. are fantastic, and it and and it's why they're worth yeah. noting. I mean, had the records not been fantastic, they wouldn't have won. What did they win? Seven mm, Grammys yeah. last year. Yeah, right, right. And I'm talking about an instructor who's you know who peaked, you know, with his stuff in the you know in the 2000s. And probably doesn't probably isn't into that sound, um, and doesn't hear it the same way this audience hears it. Right. You know. To be honest, um, I'm a firm believer that everybody has their own opinion, and in this environment that I've seen in the last two years with or last ten years with uh, the change in recording and all the studios shutting down and everything, there's more and more opinions. Yeah, because because it's there's a million ways to do it now, and nobody's well, nobody's wrong. Say, <laughs> nobody's wrong. I, I was actually about to say, I was actually about to say that if anyone feels that the Billie Eilish record sounds uh, doesn't sound competitive, I think they might have the wrong opinion. Right. Well, you know, it, and <laughs> you know, I, I I don't talk about it that often. Um, I don't think I've actually brought this record up. Um, or either of these records, but uh, he's he's you know he's a Bay Area guy. I consider acquaintance, maybe a friend, probably a friend. Yeah, I've known him long enough. Uh, Xavier Defrepolis, I think, is how he pronounces his last name. Fantastic Negrito, blues guy. Don't know. Him. Um, look him up. He's won two gram. He had two albums two years in a row, and he won best. Uh, he won. Each year he did it, he won Best Blues Album, um, and he did those records in his living room. Right on. And they're all live instruments. Right on. All live instruments, all real tracked, in his living room, affordable gear. Yeah. You know. Like, the, I, I think... You know, I'm fortunate. I have a real Hammond in my in my studio. It's not a B3 by any means. I have a you know one of the spinet organs, the the M3, um, which I which I got for free from a guy who couldn't move it up his stairs. I'm not familiar with that. Is that can um, that still do the rotary, <laughs> rotary speaker and everything? 
Yeah, if you if you have a Leslie awesome. connector, but yes, yeah, I, I I have a Leslie on it. But um, you ever plug a guitar awesome. into your Leslie? So cool. No, do it. Oh, do the it. Best. <laughs> that's the best ever. <laughs> do it. No, I, I, you know, I, I, I have a Leslie one twenty, which is a passive, um, mm. single rotor two okay. speed Leslie, and and I've really wanted to get a connector, uh, the an adapter yeah. kit, and uh, plug my. Uh, 63 basement yeah. into it. Um, I, I really wanted to do that. Uh, and I've, I've wanted to put the hand cause I have a, I have a line out on the Hammond. Uh, so I've wanted to put a, uh, <laughs> I've really wanted to put the Hammond through the basement, through the Leslie to see what the hell would, that would sound like versus just putting the Hammond directly. Well, cause Leslie. it would, that would be more um, like a B3, right? Because that's the, the tube, the tube yeah. section of, uh, or that would be more like the 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 proper classic Leslie that has the tube amp in it, right? Yeah. Right, more or I less. I love that yeah. idea. And um, you get a yeah, growl out of it. Yeah, and and you know it's funny. I almost got a Leslie eight twenty two, which is another single speed two speed, or, or pardon me, single rotor two cool. speed Leslie. Um, and it was one of the um, it's one of the Tolexed ones from the seventies. You know that they that they were like solid state, take it on the road. You're not gonna break it. It was it was right around the time that the Hammond X sixty six and X sixty seven seventy seven came out. Roughly, I don't know if you know those. I don't know. Well, they, they're they're a little yeah. bit weird. Um, they're a little weird. They're 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 not super worth. Is the tone is the tone lacking on the passive one, or is it? No, it's it, the the tone isn't lacking. It's strictly it's strictly okay. Pain. It, it hmm, doesn't get it. as loud. That's that's brilliant. I mean, it. I mean, if you think about it, look the the spinet organs all have internal yeah, speakers. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. So you already have the Leslie yeah. connected to a valve power section. So you really don't have to worry so much. But it's a twenty-one internal yeah. in in the. So in, it in it won't just like scorch your face off if you want it to. <laughs> right if you want it if you want it loud yeah you're gonna have to put the volume pedal all the way up and have the have the volume rocker on on normal. yeah um but melvin seals needs more uh, organ <laughs> it's it's still a gorgeous it's still yeah, a gorgeous they're sound always, they're, it's just so you know, cool and and you know what i know people bitch about uh when 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 hammond players hear that i have a single speed leslie in the in my studio there and they they, they bitch they they go why do you not have a 145 it takes up the same amount of space and i look at him and i go do you know how easy that thing is to mic you put 157 on it and you're done right on yeah okay i didn't realize yeah. that you know you if you want to go full stereo you can put a pair of small caps or a spare pair of large diaphragms maybe a pair of ribbon mics um, but I, I use my Hammond, so it, it's not really a lead instrument at the moment. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of filler track. It's a lot of doubling, uh, or, or harmonies with a Rhodes or another keyboard part. Right on. So it's very much to add thickness to another instrument, right? It's, it's fun miking, uh, organs. Oh and gosh, pianos. sure yeah. is. Um, I learned, I learned by, you know, cause I, you know, I was down at Hollywood sound recorders for a little while. I mic'd up the piano there a few different ways and it was Sylvia Massey's book. 
that I was. Gosh, there's so many different ways you can approach an instrument like that. It's really, it's cool. Spinet pianos are very strange to Mike. What? What is a spinet piano? piano? I meant to ask you that a minute ago. Um, Well, initially I was referring to a spinet organ, which is a, 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 the full console organs, uh, at least in Hammond terms, are uh, 61-note keyboards with... um, Okay. Well, they're 73-note keyboards, and then you have 61 usable keys, and the bottom 12 are reverse color for presets. Oh, that's what Um, those do. Dude, I've been wondering about that for a long time. (laughs) Wow. Well, so many levers. No, I just like my tinkerings with B3s. I've always wondered what the reverse keys do. (laughs) That's amazing. Okay. The reverse keys are presets. And on for each manual of the organ, you have two sets of draw bars. So B flat and B key presets are to switch between the two sets of draw bars for percussion. You go to the B preset on the upper manual and it's upper manual only, only on the B preset. Uh, and then you have two draw bars for the bass pedals. Oh, that's so cool. I had no idea. And this is a, this is a really, if you have a weird tone coming out of your, coming out of your Hammond and you know, you have like, and you want to just shut it up, but you need to keep it on. Um, or actually, this is this is the best thing. If you have a Hammond player that will not shut up, but you need the organ still hot, all you got to do is go to the organ and push the C keys on the reverse color keys because C stands for cancel. <laughs> it, can- it cancels out the presets. So you just it just like oh, mutes shit. the whole thing. <laughs> it won't it won't mute the bass pedals but nobody plays so it just like zeroes out the thing amplifiers on no no frequencies are activated right because you have no preset sound that's that's programmed into the organ and you don't so when you hit those out. when you hit one of those presets for the the drawbar presets do they fly into a certain configuration no <laughs> um so they're Draw bars are yeah. like faders, yeah. right? They're they're just a weird kind of fader, and okay. a fader like a poten- is a potentiometer, which is a variable right. resistor. So the preset keys are hooked up to a series of resistors, which are attached to the key bus okay. bars, and that will go through the tones in the tone generator. Um, so each of those has a set resistance. Now you can. The interesting thing is because each draw bar has a number you can actually move around the presets in the back of the organ. Um, and this is some spinets have preset keys. Um, the, the early ones don't, you can move them, you can move them around with solder pads. The original console organs with preset keys have, uh, panels, which I believe I haven't worked on a B3 in a while, but I believe you can unscrew and move each, uh, contact sounds like a pain in the ass for it's, it's a pain in the ass, but it's not, it's not meant to be, you know, yeah. changed around a lot. Um, but most people really don't use those right. presets anyway. Most people are on the B flat and the B keys, which are the two sets of draw bars per manual. Got it. Um, there's a lot going on. Yeah. Welcome to the world of Hammond organs. <laughs> yeah, but I love that sound. It's it's I don't know how to describe what it does for me. 
what space it fills up for me, like the growl of it, you know, sometimes. Well, it's and just, just the electric organ in general. I, I think back to I think back to the band's songs from Big Pink or music from Big Pink. Oh God! Um, um, uh, what's his name? Garth Hudson. Garth oh my is not God! Not playing a Hammond. He's playing a Lowry. Okay. And Shelly Yakis loves telling this story. Garth brought in a telegram, uh, a, a, a telegraph. Uh, uh, what's it called? The the button for a telegraph. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, I know what that thing is. Yeah, I'm, I'm forgetting the proper um, name uh, for it. I was in signal school in the army, and I, I can't believe I'm not spitting this out right now. <laughs> right. Spoken spoken like a true army signal corps guy. <laughs> yeah, I uh, forgot. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. But it, anyway, he brought the telegraph switch, right? And he, uh, and he stuck it. Uh, he ran the hot signal of his organ out of the organ into the telegraph switch and then out of the telegraph switch into the Leslie. And he took the, he he had a variable spring on it. And at one point I think he took the spring out. So when he bashed on the switch, it would go. So he had this organ running through a telegraph switch. That's so rad. And we did not know that. Yeah. Who would have, why did you think that? It's pretty cool. <laughs> Garth Hudson. You got to love him. Yeah. I think that's been the, the, the biggest fun about getting into engineering is all the tinkering and, and, and little things you hear about. Um, uh, uh, like, you know, what was one of the ones first ones that got me was, uh, flipping speakers out of phase, you know, and, and finding out that you could do that in, in a, in a recording booth. And that's how people like, Michael Jackson liked to record, you know, um, didn't want to wear the headphones. So he needs to hear the mix. So they would, you know, have a couple speakers in there and flip one of the speakers out of the phase and stick the mic in that dead spot. Mm -hmm. So he could, so he could, uh, so he could record. And I'm just like, that's freaky. That's science. (laughs) Right. (laughs) What's going on here? We try that at home. (laughs) Or if you, uh, if you put, if you face two speakers directly facing each other. Oh yeah. That's a funny one. Yeah. Yeah. Just canceling each other out. Oh, oh yeah. Word. <sighs> Audio I think we joys, did that man. at school. You know, uh, yeah. we did, we did. I'm trying to, I was trying to remember what class that was that that happened in. It was, it was one very of the early guys. on. I think we had some really cool instructors that left that school not long after Peter left and like um, not, not many of them stayed. Um, and it's funny. I don't know. They just like disappeared into, into the engineer. Uh, n- neither. neither. <laughs> um, yeah. Daniel, have you been right. working with clients remotely since things have been different? You know, I have not had very many clients lately. Yeah. Um, a lot of a lot of the work I've been doing, frankly, is mostly with my band, and they don't really have the capabilities. But they're all local, and you know, this place being a garage, yeah. I have enough room for them to spread out, and I have enough places for guys for horn players to take masks off. You know, I have a I have pipe and drape set up, and and they're just behind the drapes, so they can 
be comfortable taking their masks off. And we're about 20 feet away. So if I need to take my mask off to, you know, scratch my face, I feel safe. They're behind a, a curtain. I'm sitting, not even facing them at a desk, yeah. you know. That's good. So, um, yeah, San Francisco is the luxury of having those big, long basements. <laughs> Yeah. Either either you're in a house like this one or you're in a tiny, tiny studio apartment uh, with 10. No, no, no. It's 2021. F- about 15 roommates. <laughs> yeah, I know. It's I always dreamed about it. It's I think the first time I, I went into a house in San Francisco was your guys's house. Um, I'd never known anybody that lived in the city prior to that. Uh, and it was your birthday about like 13 years ago. And I remember you took me down and showed me your setup down in the basement. You had drums. I had, had I in a bass. I think you had a bass. I presume at that point I, that was, I had already gotten the kit from Zig. Um, yeah, you had had a kit. Yeah. And you, you were keeping a beat and I'm like, good Lord. What, what part of town do you live in? <laughs> I live in the Sunset District. I'm a mile and a half from the beach. Cool. I can't get to sleep tonight at night in, unless I've seen your dad's daily posts at the beach. <laughs> I'm like, you know, he's always got great commentary, uh, you know, people fishing, uh, enjoying, <laughs> enjoying the day. Yeah. It's it's lovely. <laughs> no. That, I, think that's, I think that's the only thing that keeps that man sane at this point. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll tell you, I miss um, seeing people in a studio environment and going in physically. Yeah, to do I do too. Work somewhere. I do too. I know I know yeah, I am kind of seeing people, but it's a uh, I will, I'll say this when I've I've had I don't know a handful of in-person talents now since since the summertime. And uh every time somebody a strange person or somebody familiar that I've worked with in previous years comes in now and is safely ensconced on the other side of the glass i feel like a manic positive energy i have to kind of tamper down because i'm just so excited i think to like be with human beings and i kind of fancy myself a solitary person but i still just cannot deny that feeling i mean it's it's given a lot of time for creativity though you know we found our we found our side hustle with uh you know, being around animation and realizing we wanted to write something, you know, like, and I've watched it in other people. I have friends that have completed music projects that they knew they were working on for a long time, you know, and, and stuff that they said that they were going to do a long time ago and never did that stuff. I'm glad you brought up the, uh, writing things and, and, and what you've written. It's a really interesting story. Um, how did you come across the idea of writing this script and what, what made you hone in on the story that you've that you've written? Oh, uh, uh, you know that was. Um, I, I think it, it came out of a midlife crisis type event. <laughs> I had uh, uh, decided I was going to move down to the Florida Keys for a while and live on a boat, and which is it sounds crazy because it is. Uh, and I took my I took my cat with me even, so it was me and my cat out on this boat in the mooring fields off of uh key west it was about a 15 minute dinghy ride from turtle crawls over to my boat and uh when i was there i i met a lot of really colorful locals or conks as they're as they like to be called and uh, learned a lot of things about you know local sea life and 
<laughs> when I when I had stone crab, I you know I asked about I, I'm I'm a curious guy. I ask about how they fish for it and everything, and they described to me that this is a crab that's sustainably fished because you can remove its claw and they let it go and it grows back. And immediately my mind goes to, well, how, do, how does the crab feel about this? That's terrible. You know, you're, you're, <laughs> you're running along, you're having your day and somebody rips your arm off. And I'm like, that's, you know, and, you know, fast forward, you know, to me and Peter chatting about it and, well, I've never, I mean, I've never had, the, the I never got to snowballed. try stone crabs, and it's hopefully the moment we can go to Key West and party. We'll, we'll take the, uh, take, uh, seize the opportunity. But we were, we were sitting at happy hour one day, and I forget how we breached the topic, but we were probably just going over Scott's Key West adventures in one respect or another, and I just, I randomly said something like. You said I was Uncle like, Stone what if, Crab. Like so so as fate would have it, as it happens, it's all groovy. You they they responsibly farm the stone crabs and harvest the claws, and then they regenerate. And it's all good. So it's all good. People are ostensibly cool with having their arms ripped off, and it's all just part of a, some jolly uh uh symbiotic relationship with the uh the folks in Key West. And I think I was like, what well, about what the if, one who got away? What if one of one, what about the one that doesn't want to do it? You know. <laughs> and then you said, uncle. So that was like two years ago. And that, eventually that, uh, Scott yeah. motivated both of us to uh, hunker down and try and hatch a story about a, a stone crab coming to find the truth about freedom. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I think it was probably my favorite part of the summer and and into the fall was sitting down and doing that. Kind of kept me sane through through it all. It felt of very this. good to be productive. Um, yes, yeah. it did. So, so yeah, time to keep working and, on that. You know, and it, it may you know it falls into some political territory a little bit. You know, with the, with the story, not obvious. You know. Um, I mean, they're building a little wall around this community out of their own claws. That's dark. <laughs> it's a dark story. But, uh, you know, I really want to see it through. And hopefully, you know, we're starting to show it to people. And uh, I'd really like somebody to bite. And, and I'd like to see this come to well, life. It's a cool story, man. It's it's funny. And I and I really like your uh, your your uh, picks for who you want to play some of these characters. The... <laughs> yeah, yeah. And it, it that's good because it get, when you're writing a breakdown, it gives you a visual when the person reads it of, of those characters and can, can kind of put them there. Um, yeah, I mean, if you read the Commodore, we've got Owen Wilson as the Commodore and, and uh, it just, it's perfect. I see him every time when I, right. I, I read that. Well, you know, so. I just found, I, I found it especially mm -hmm. funny. There's a lot of big names here. And then I see the mayor. Uh, and, and <laughs> you and know you the go, mayor. <laughs> the guy from the Grateful Dead, Bob Weir, Willie Nelson, or a dear old friend of all of ours, a guy named Tom Pinatelli. Yeah, I mean, Tom's voice. 
uh, and Peter noticed it heavily too. Lovely, He's got a resonant, great voice. sarcastic. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it was just like you know, I can hear him as that character. Well, you know, and and being, Tom Pinatelli yeah. is one of those guys that can laugh at you, but you don't feel bad at the fact that he's laughing at you. You know what, what I mean? a treasure is that? <laughs> you know, wow, that is the truest statement I have. It's a ever lucky, heard. it's a lucky thing to have friends like that, isn't it, gentlemen? My goodness, Indeed. Oh, it is. It's a blessing. It's yeah. a blessing. Yeah, oh, amen. No, it, it's 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 a cool script. You and you, it's a it's a very cool idea. Um, and of course, I, I... we'll see what happens. It's there's a lot of there's a lot of scripts here uh, running around. So uh, hopefully, somebody says it's or thinks it's unique, and we, we're able to do something with it. But uh, you know, I will keep well, the faith. Even on if that. it isn't a full length, I think it might be interesting as a series of shorts. That might be interesting. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. One way or another, hell or high water, something will happen. Hey man, that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the way I think, you know, it's not something that I talked about with him in the interview, but I've talking a lot with, uh, tree Adams, uh, who, who I've spoken about, uh, earlier. He, he likes talking about, uh, you gotta, you gotta get your finishing muscles. It's you, you got you can't you can't be like all those guys in the gym who who you know work all their upper body because they think it looks good but they don't work their calves. You can't have spindly little calves. You got to work your calf muscles. You got to work your thighs. Um, Finishing so, muscle. Yeah, love that. Yeah, I mean, you know, I've I heard <laughs> I heard someone really cool say that all writers hate writing but they love finishing. <sighs> I think I just, I think I just had that experience. <laughs> it resonated with me. Why didn't you, t- why it resonated, didn't you tell I think me I that earlier? That's that. great. It's, it resonated with me about you. songwriting for sure. Well, they hate writing, but they love finishing. Hmm. <laughs> Sounds like someone who is a very cunning linguist and an incredibly master debater. Really yeah, right. Like <laughs> <laughs> well put. Yeah. Uh, well put. Yeah. You know, I, I, I think, I think the opposite is true for me, and I think a lot of a lot of people in my generation they love starting projects, and I, I think I could probably tell you how many projects I. There are close to twenty or thirty unfinished projects that are all started in various stages of working or or should be finished. Few of them are finished. Um, you know, they're releasable and you could, I'd probably even venture to say, I, you know, maybe add one or two things, build a, build a vocal line for them or whatever, but as an instrumentals, they're, they're releasable. But, you know, it's like you start a project and then you sort of have the inspiration for that project for a while, but you need to write more parts. You need to flesh out the arrangement, all that sort of thing. And then you just sort of forget about it after a while and move on to the next project. Sits on the shelf for a while. Now I, I I think, I think uh, trees assessment of you got to just finish it uh, is, is a good thing. And, and actually another friend of mine, Will Magan, um, drove this home as well uh in an episode that we did together uh where he very blatantly said polish the turds 
Yes, I love that saying. You know, they, you know, everybody says you can't polish the turd, and then he just comes out and goes, "You gotta polish the turds." And he he used this song that he had an Afrobeat band, and this Afrobeat band had a song on their record, and it was his least favorite song, and they just sort of did it for sake of, well, we have the song; it's you know worth recording and finishing. And uh, that song got chosen to be in a video game, and that's. You know, it it took them eight years, but that thing paid for their album and they're profiting off of it a little bit. Not much, but, you know, it it gave them some kind of financial freedom, especially now in in pandemic time. So, yeah, it's their least favorite song. And that's the one off that entire album that's making the money. So that 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 happens more. I'm not surprised that you'd say that you got to strive to see the potential in everything, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's a cool story. There's number one songs out there that bands have had that people, you know, that they didn't want to put on the album and were almost left off, you know, or somebody said no and they said yes, you know, and 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 it's like, uh, and well, the and that's, I, you know what, <laughs> Sammy Davis Jr. There's a great Sammy uh, reference, and I I can't quote I him, it, but. I, from what I've heard, he, one of his biggest hits was a cover from uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, the, the Candyman. Candyman. I was gonna. And I was about to say, yeah, hated that Man song. Candy. He hated that song, <laughs> especially once it was you know in the seventies, and he was singing it in the seventies at the height of the of sexual freedom and drug use and all that stuff. And he's like the candy man. It's you know, the, the drug dealer, you know, and he really, <laughs> and he was the hip and guy, being a hip guy. He really did not want to sing that song. Now he, I, I do believe the band they recorded in his pool house. Um, that's where like Ophelia was uh, recorded was his pool house in LA. Yeah. Which, was it his pool house? It was definitely a house. Shangri-La. Shangri-La Studios. Oh, it was Shangri-La. That's right, Rick which Rubin. is now owned by Rick Rubin. Yeah. Yes, yes, you are absolutely correct. Oh yeah, God. and actually, if you go, I think it. I think they did it at Shangri-La. Um, there was an interview that Rick Rubin yeah. did with Kendrick Lamar, and I think they did it in the yard of Shangri-La. Yeah. Um I've seen a couple of those. I think that's where he interviewed Bobby, right? Yeah, I oh, thought yeah, that was out, out in the yard. It's a good place to to do in Malibu. It's a, it's Hell a, yeah, it's gorgeous. It's a gorgeous place. I mean, sh- <laughs> Rick, Rick Rick Rubin is is he's a mystic <laughs> at this point. Well, he already looks you know? like he he's he's one of Gandalf's cousins. His whole vibe, right? But go go and look at Rick Rubin, nineteen eighty. Oh no, Rick yeah. Rubin. You know, and this this Rick Rubin, it's he could definitely Rick tell Rick. you if the band played it well. <laughs> yeah, he continues no. to do so. <laughs> Absolutely, Rick. <laughs> Rubin, I think if there's any producer to strive to be like, it would definitely be Rick Rubin. I mean, his production credits he's done everything he really has yeah the 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 commonality is a certain bar of performance and 
gosh, what is it? Just he gives people a space, man. He gives them like the ultimate space to be creative. You know, if you're not calm in that situation, yeah, I don't even know. You know yeah. what I mean? Like, um, he's a no so cell phone. You know, I'm going to isolate you. I'm going to give you the most chill space ever. If you need sand on the floor under the piano, there's going to be sand on the floor underneath. The it's piano. like all of those, all of those hit yeah. records, whether or not it's uh, Chili Peppers or Beastie Boys. He did Beastie Boys, right? Mm-hmm. He did Beastie Boys. Yeah. Beastie Boys. Uh, Beastie Boys. Yeah, yeah. And Tom Petty, uh, all yeah. of that stuff. The, it's like um, the the artist's ownership over the material is so unassailable it's like just perfect like the distillation of the most perfect performance like it's their song and it's still everything is delivered just the way it needs to be right and i think that's kind of what you're what you're saying about him giving them the right space scott and also just being like that's like do it this way (laughs) yeah (laughs) that should be the good that should be the good producer right yeah for sure step in when you need to, but you know, don't, don't interfere too much with the, with the vision, it, you know, and enhance it where you can and, and step in where, where things need to are very obviously need to be changed. It's, it, it feels so good to, to trust someone who knows like that too. Right. Yeah. As an artist, I got to say it's, it can be really, you get in your own way so much when you're trying to, just get the perfect take or hit the perfect chord. And sometimes you just need someone to like push you through it onto the next one. Mm -hmm. No, completely. I I remember so many moments like that recording in, in a band. It's, it's definitely a thing. This is why us recording types end up being psychologists as well. You you know, I find I'm probably not going <laughs> to include this, but I, I find that I, uh, I I don't understand why. Maybe it's because I'm a recording engineer, but all of my friends uh, come to me for dating advice. <laughs> Apparently, I'm I'm record producer, and on the side, I'm I'm the the the, the relationship expert. I. You're easy to talk to, man. Which I, which I find is. completely crazy because I talk too much. Uh, <laughs> no, man, you were talking when I met you. Like you were the you were a chatty young man, and I was like, you know, that's the articulate young guy, right? I mean, there, go figure. Know? Go talk to the guy who heard, makes I, things work. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> this is this is how it happened. Yeah. Sorry, Scott, I didn't mean to talk over you. <laughs> Oh no worries. Oh man, no the worries, king of yeah. making things work. You should hear my raw snare sounds. Talk about making things work. Oof. <laughs> Speaking of which, that's that's, that's a awesome. that's a thing that I've found a lot of home recording guys get get a problem. That's that's a problem area for, for a lot of recording guys. Yeah. Drums. Home recording guys really have a hard time yeah. with drums, it seems. They can get guitars, they can get vocals. It's... If they have pianos, they can yep. do pianos, but they really cannot do drums well. Not always. It takes a long time. Have you, ever, have you seen that? Is that a, if is, if you want to if you want to remove know, the room, it's, go ahead, it's hard to remove it completely. And if you want to use the room, it's it takes uh, it takes some focus to make it work. Yeah, 
yeah. and that's that's drums, right? You can either go for uh, an anechoic sound or the closest thing you can to reducing the ambience, or you use the space you have. Right. And end up doing replacements <laughs> well, anyways. Replacements, supplements. People look at it different ways. Right. Well, I, I think my my favorite thing is when if if you're going to use samples, use samples in addition to the drums that you have, not not replacing things. Replacement yeah, layering, layering has yeah. always been a, a a favored technique for me and something that I've been doing a lot more of. Um it's certainly the the school I come from. Well, yeah, I mean, if you're if you're gonna, it's it's kind of the the best of both being old school and uh, and modern production, right? If you're gonna if you're gonna have a hybrid, if you're mixing. gonna have a, a a sound, you should probably commit to that sound. And uh, if you're if you need to modify it or add something you can layer on top of it i mean that that's that's the whole thing with with what i was doing earlier today it's uh, not drums but uh, you know saxophones i have three there there's one line that i have three of the same exact line played nearly the same um and each each time i had my sax player detune his saxophone a little bit for a natural chorusing effect just to that's a good idea a bit of ambiance and you know figure you know add some extra stuff and of course this is layered in with another bit of a, a, a three-part harmony but it's still like if you're going to do something and you want it to sound unique and individual commit d- definitely commit because nobody commits anymore and layer layering's great I've heard that technique um, done with guitar and I'm trying to think, I'm trying to think if, if it was an early Tom Petty album or what it was, but they had recorded the guitar track. He didn't want to, he didn't want to do a double and he got talked into it and the engineer grabbed the strings and pulled on the strings, <clears throat> not knocking them out of tune, but just enough. Right. You know what I mean? And, and that became, God, who was that? Oh man, I should have should have looked it up before I said anything. But that became like a signature guitar sound for them. Oh, it was ZZ Top. It was ZZ Top. The ZZ Top guitar sound. That's what that is. Um, and I found that. Well, totally I got to tell you, it's no certainly idea. a lot easier on a on a monophonic instrument like a like a wind instrument than a guitar. True story. <laughs> I can imagine. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah, I haven't recorded any horns except for at school once. It was uh, Heather Bish. Well, come up here and you'll have to record a lot of horns. (laughs) (laughs) Cool. Man, I'd love to come up there when this thing is over and and see you. And I'm sure we'll all end up at shows or or something. Um, We've been going up to see, well, at least I have. Peter's come up for a couple shows Mm. to see Dead and Company. and it just sucks that there's no music right now. It's driving me crazy. I want to add, man, I hope you stick with all of this. And, um, you know, I just heard they're, they're reopening that studio. Over yeah, the record in, plant. What is it? Um, the Sausalito 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 record, plant. record plant. If I mean, I'm not telling you what to do with your career, but if I were you, I would go over there and, and be like, uh, let what me be do a gopher. Me to do? Can I just 
Yeah, anything, man. That that place is legendary, and I'm sure whatever they end up doing over there, it will be fun, and they would love to have somebody who's a gearhead um, like you. During my time doing this show, I've gotten to talk to a lot of different people with a lot of different jobs in the recording industry. Composers, sound designers, people in engineering and production, people who've been on both sides of the glass. This time, I got into a whole new part of the audio recording industry that I never really thought of. This was especially cool because it allowed me to start thinking about new questions that I hadn't thought of asking before. Scott, Peter, thank you so much for being on the show and shedding some light on this really interesting part of the industry I never really perceived before. Also, I'm glad I could shed some light for you guys on how Hammond organs work and how a Hammond organ player is kind of like a programmer and a space shuttle pilot. For all of you interested in finding Scott and Peter, check out Shinebox, Scott's SoundCloud, and check out Peter's band Over It, which has some really cool punk rock songs. Also, check out their work on Muppet Babies and some other really cool works in the animated realm, and be on the lookout in the next couple months, years, and so on for their own original animation, The Ballad of Uncle Stone Crab, which I think you'll all really love once it comes out. Welcome to Gear Talk, and a special one at that. Today, I'm combining Gear Talk with our regularly scheduled music segment, as I have something pretty cool to share with all of you. Today, I'm picking up where I left off on my review and demo of the AKG Podcaster Essentials Pack. As I said in our last episode, I've really come to fall in love with this pack and use it often. AKG has said of this pack that you could use it for podcasting, recording your, quote, next Spotify single, or for better audio quality on your next video conference. Having lived with this gear for the last few weeks, I can say with confidence that it excels in all three tasks. As with my last episode, all of my voiceover has been recorded with the AKG Lyra straight into my Pro Tools session. Since last episode, I also had the pleasure of using the Lyra and the included K371 headphones to attend and partake in the virtual album release party of my dear friend MC Infinite's debut album, Critical Minded, which I used the K371 headphones to do post-production on. In both cases, the virtual album release party and the post-production work, the gear excelled and performed really well under stress. By the way, link to the album Critical Minded will be in the description of today's show. Now, having wanted to give myself a challenge to see what I can do with all of this gear, I decided to write and produce a track with all of the included goodies in the Podcaster Essentials Pack, including the Ableton Live Lite 10 license that the mic and headphones comes with. I will admit to you all, it has been a bit difficult to record in a piece of software that I'm not well versed in, and one that has limitations like this one does. As I very quickly found out, 
Ableton Live Lite only has eight audio and MIDI tracks. Initially, I was worried. I had some pretty big plans for this track, and I thought I might not be able to achieve my goals with it. However, I soon realized that all I needed to do was look to the Beatles. They made some of their best music on 4- and 8-track tape, and made some huge-sounding tracks with it. So, if they could do it, why couldn't I? This, of course, means I will have to spend some time committing sounds and bouncing tracks down to avoid maxing out prematurely. However, given the current sounds in this track and my future plans with it, this shouldn't be too big of an issue. Even so, I had to get creative. This meant maximizing what I could do with this microphone and getting as many interesting sounds with it as I could. Because of this, I opted for some voices I wouldn't normally think to use in a barebones pop song as this one. Firstly, I immediately went for a nylon string acoustic instead of a steel string. Second, I opted for an upright. To my mind, using an electric bass and a steel string acoustic weren't going to be able to show the capabilities or the maximum potential of this microphone. Of course, to keep in the pop realm, I did end up tracking electric guitar and will be adding guitar solos to the finished product. Future plans for this track also include some keys, electronic and live drums, and if time allows, perhaps some vocals as well. Mind you, I'm not holding my breath for vocals, but if we can make it happen, I'd be very excited to show it to you all. Stay tuned for the next episode of Gear Talk, where we will hopefully have Scott Wildman returning to give us some tips about producing music in Ableton Live and possibly collaborating on this track. For now, though, here are the rough-mixed basics to this yet-to-be-named track consisting of guitars, upright bass, and alto sax. Enjoy! That's the show, everyone. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed listening as much as I enjoyed talking to all of you. Special major big thank you to Mr. Scott Wildman and Mr. Peter Munters for being on the show today. Guys, it was so fun having you on, and I can't wait to speak to you both more soon. Tune in next time. We're going to have Theo Hartman on. He's an old boss of mine. He was the founder of Hartman Electronics, a now legendary boutique pedal company, which I actually worked for as a young lad as a demonstrator for a lot of different things. We're going to talk about that and much more, including his upcoming and current EPs and some interesting talks about how he got into music, then architecture, then back into music. As always, there will be more gear to geek out on and more music to share with all of you, especially next time 
where we will finish up our AKG Lyra and Podcaster Essentials Pack demo and review. I think you'll be really excited for this. I certainly am. As always, this is Daniel the D3 Cohen signing out from Google Productions Worldwide Headquarters and Studios right here in lovely San Francisco, California. We're ready to record.